whether answering insincere questions has value in the moment, much later, or ever. What's she going to do then? Well, that's what I've been sitting here contemplating. First, I'm going to deliver this case to Marcellus. Then, basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. What you mean, walk the earth? You know, like Kane in Kung Fu. Walk from place to place, meet people, get in adventures. And how long do you intend to walk the earth? Till God puts me where he wants me to be. And what if you don't do that? If it takes forever, then I'll walk forever. Welcome to Walk the Earth. I'm Greg. And I think I can say here on this back-to-back recordings of Walk the Earth podcasts that I've made some decisions that I think are going to be helpful, at least for me to know, going forward. I've spent the better part of a year and a half wondering if the Walk the Earth podcast would persist. Would I revert back to the original configuration of the podcast on this RSS feed and just do inappropriate conversations from now on? We have now hit the five-year anniversary of Walk the Earth. It was five years ago at the time that I'm recording that I first released a promo on inappropriate conversations. It was looking forward to the next inappropriate conversations podcast, but it finished off with an announcement that walk the earth was coming. And in August of that year, walk the earth did start 2013 with a focus on making a journey of what it means as a Christian to leave, not just a church, but a denomination and seek a new path, a new way forward. Now, probably less than halfway through the, runtime of these episodes so far, this being the 52nd Walk the Earth, that journey was completed. I made a switch to a Disciples of Christ Church and haven't looked back. But one reason to continue doing Walk the Earth is that I still have questions. And the decision that I've made really this week was that I'm going to continue to have some questions where Walk the Earth is the right format for answering them. Now, there may be occasions like this particular show where I really was wrestling with and up in the air on whether to do it at all. We'll see, because I'm deciding whether or not answering some of these questions that I'm going to look at today makes any sense in the first place. Or whether to look at questions like this and the challenge that I want to pose back to them from the perspective of inappropriate conversations. And what I've learned about myself, I think, is that I'm going to have some topics I want to look at where Walk the Earth is just the right format going forward. So the shows will not merge. They will maintain their independent approach and format, uh, theme songs, the whole nine yards. But I will keep them both running and allow different topics to be addressed in different ways. I remember going all the way back to that first year of Walk the Earth, where the sixth question I answered was directly aligned with an inappropriate conversations topic, looking at gender in the church. And from the Inappropriate Conversations podcast, it was looking at really just the pure theology of it all and the politics behind the theology of those who say that women shouldn't be allowed to preach or shouldn't play an active role in the church. But then on Walk the Earth, I looked at it more from the perspective of churches that we had visited who had taken either a hard line or a a subtle but nevertheless, in my opinion, insidious line about the role of women in the church. And I kind of dealt with it that way. The short answer is Walk the Earth is going to continue. We're also approaching the three-year anniversary of Walk the Earth 30. Walk the Earth 30 was recorded in 2015, late August of that year, live before a studio audience at Pride 48 in Las Vegas. 
This year, I will also be at the uh, Pride 48 Podcasting Expo. The 2018 event is going to be in New Orleans. Here's the announcement from the website at pride48.com slash event. We are pleased to announce the event for 2018 in New Orleans, Louisiana. Come join us to listen to your favorite shows, sip a daiquiri, broadcast live, and experience that all that New Orleans has to offer. So, for me, I'm going to do most of those things. Not really sold on the daiquiri yet. We'll see how things go. But not only will I be listening to some of my favorite shows live, I'll be doing one. It won't be Walk the Earth this time as it was in 2015. This time it will be inappropriate conversations. And if things go to plan, I will have a guest with me on the stage and inappropriate conversations will have conversation. So wanted to do a quick promo at the beginning of the show to call out that uh, the event at the New Orleans Superdome is going to be from Friday, August 24th to Sunday, August 26th. This is probably the last podcast I'll be recording and putting out on the feed prior to that live show. So after this recording is made, more details will be available. Those details will be provided either at uh, the Facebook page for Inappropriate Conversations, listed as a cause, probably the Walk the Earth Facebook page too, just to hit as wide an audience as I can. I'll also share it on Twitter, where I can be found at IC underscore Greg. And since I'm making announcements about how to interact with the show and where information is going to come from, I'll also say that I can be reached by email, IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. So that will clear the initial announcements. Most importantly to me, Walk the Earth is going to continue, and it's also not going to continue this year with a live production at the Pride 48 Podcasting uh, Expo. This time, that will instead be inappropriate conversations. But what I want to do this time is actually look back from a Walk the Earth perspective to that same time period three years ago. I'm going to be sharing a blog post, at least in part, uh, the questions at the very least, from uh, someone who's online with the name Meta Modern Faith. Uh, Matt, I believe, is his name. I think I encountered his blog through the Word of a Woman website and Michelle's blog because a couple of uh, blog posts I've read on Meta Modern Faith cites Michelle. So clearly they know each other. They're on a first name basis, so to speak. And I probably never actually chance across his blog at all and read some of the information I'm going to share today if it weren't for Word of a Woman and some of the things that she had posted online first. But just to cite some sources, this is a response to a member of the Gospel Coalition who somewhere in the middle of June in 2015 put out a post saying something like, I've got 40 questions for Christians who are now waving rainbow flags. I'm going to describe these as insincere questions. In fact, I'm going to let Matt from Meta Modern Faith, I'm going to use the beginning and ending of his blog post to share that same thought and kind of let him put his words on it. But if you wanted to seek that for yourself, it is metamodernfaith.com. And the blog post I'm going to be referring to was from July 2nd, 2015. Response to Kevin DeYoung's 40 Questions for Christians Who Are Now Waving Rainbow Flags. So as I get to the point of introducing what my answers to these questions might have been or could have been, I want to say a couple things right up front. First, these are insincere questions. I know they are. I'm going to call that out as I work my way through what my potential answers might have been. It's the reason why 
this particular post got radio silence from me uh, all those years ago. One of the other reasons, though, was that I was preparing for a Walk the Earth podcast to share um, a, a different post online and social media from a friend of mine who was actually speaking directly to it in her own words as a Christian reacting to the marriage equality ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court. The other thing I would just say is that I've maintained a position for quite some time now, and I, I haven't changed my mind looking backward to three years ago, that the evangelical Christian church or the religious right in America absolutely lost its mind and for a period of time, perhaps persisting to this day, in fact, likely persisting to this day, has even lost the ability to rationally thought process what it means if someone else who is not them has access to rights that don't impact them. Uh, it, it's as if it's as if you could almost make an argument that for some religious conservatives, the gay marriage ruling in late June of 2015 was a trigger that could have led them to make decisions whether at the polls or through political donation or through social media interaction to literally destroy our country. For some folks, perhaps a United States of America fully and constitutionally functioning with a wide range of checks and balances and with a commitment to our own sovereignty as a nation would rather make us subservient to a hostile power that hates gay people rather than live in a world that is following up to that particular Supreme Court ruling. But in the aftermath of that, things were even more heated. And that's what I want to do. I want to dial back and look at Matt's response online immediately to these questions that were put out there. Noting, of course, that some people, previous different drummers, in fact, on the Inappropriate Conversations podcast, like John Shore, just quickly dismissed all of the questions, responding even angrily at times, to the ridiculously confrontational tone and subtext of those questions. Matt was the first one I saw in Metamodern Faith, his blog, that at least pretended for a time, or to the extent that it was possible, to take the questions seriously. Here's Matt. Yesterday I came across a post titled, 40 Questions for Christians Now Waving Rainbow Flags. Looking through the questions, I decided to answer all of them. Of course, since was, this was published on the Gospel Coalition website, the questions were a hodgepodge of good questions, bad questions, and misinformed questions designed to expose sinful Christians more than start a dialogue. Even the title itself reveals the first major misunderstanding using the word now. Many Christians have been waving the rainbow flag while loving Jesus for decades. The questions weren't that hard to answer, so he says here are his answers. I will instead supplant with my answers, but I want to jump to the ending of his blog post again, because he ends the intro by warning people who, once you fire a shot off the bow like this from a group like the Gospel Coalition, you almost have an obligation to read the answers you get, or you're no longer entitled to say that the other side, the people who support equality, don't have good, solid Christian reasons for their worldview. If you ask a question, you kind of need to look at the answers, at least before you judge that those answers don't exist or can't be trusted. Here's the ending of Matt's post. Look, I know that this list of questions is just a snarky attempt to make people feel bad. Your hope was probably that one of three things would happen. One, people would not be able to answer any questions because they are not real Christians and are just following the cruel crowd. Two, 
real Christians would read a few of the questions, get convicted, and change their position. Or three, liberals would answer all of the questions incorrectly and just prove that they don't really know the Bible or they don't really follow God. The number of redundant, poorly worded, and misleading questions just backs this up. You are not expecting Bible-believing, God-fearing, Jesus-loving Christians to be able to correctly answer any of the questions, even though millions of us can. This just highlights the level of disrespect you have for people that take a different position than you. Of course, people on all sides of the issues do that, including myself. But I hope that someday you will realize this problem, and that will help you choose to have a more, much more productive conversation around this topic and many others. That is Matt from his Metamodern Faith blog. Now I guess the right thing for me to do is to jump into the questions, but before I do it, and I may do this a couple times along the way, because with 40 questions, this is likely to be a long episode of Walk the Earth, it can help to restate the question, just to make sure that as I'm going through and answering someone else's list of 40 questions, that I've got a question of my own. And that is whether even answering these questions has some value. I decided at the time, all those years ago, that it had no value in the moment, that there was a better way to use my time. But here we are at much later. So is it going to be worthwhile to answer these questions now, three years plus on? Or maybe the answer is that it's never a good idea to spend any time on insincere questions. We shall see. Question one. And remember, this is all coming right in the aftermath of the Supreme Court ruling on marriage equality. How long have you believed that gay marriage is something to be celebrated? I shared Romans 12 last week at the end of the last Walk the Earth episode, and it holds a key passage here about weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. Even though I'm playing along for the sake of argument, I do know that the intent of these questions from the religious right is not healthy. Consider this, though. You don't have to go back 50 years to face similar questions about how long have you believed that interracial marriage was something to be celebrated. So great on the curve from there. Marriage is the question, and leaving all introductory adjectives and descriptions aside, for most people that is a cause for celebration. For the religious right, it is a word that made them lose their minds three years ago, and they haven't yet fully recovered. But for me... I'm more than willing to rejoice with those who rejoice. What Bible verse led me to this change of mind? Well, I never had to change my mind, for one. And Romans 12.15 is not changed in its meaning either. That's the verse I've already quoted. How would you make a positive case from Scripture that sexual activity between two persons of the same sex is a blessing to be celebrated? I can't answer that question with great sincerity, because my sexual relationship is with a person of the opposite sex. For me to presume to have some say in others' relationships is almost certainly insincere. As for scripture, it is not some cosmic book of rules. It's a set of stories that collectively tell the unfolding story of our relationship with God and God's love for us. Read it solely as a list of what is and isn't permitted, and you could easily end up banning things like Crab Rangoon while permitting things like rape and murder. What verses would you use to show that a marriage between two persons of the same sex can adequately depict Christ and the church? I haven't experienced anything on this earth that can adequately depict Christ, not even in a narrowly viewed relationship like God and the church. 
Frankly, I pity anyone who misses, intentionally or otherwise, the marvelous complexity of creation, which those same people often ironically call intelligent design while they simultaneously try to oversimplify it. That's how I feel about creation. I'm not sure you can imagine the complexity, the opposite of adequate simplicity, that I see in understanding the Creator. Do you think Jesus would have been okay with homosexual behavior between consenting adults in a committed relationship? Heaven help the person cursed with simple questions. There isn't a tidy short answer here. For better detail, I do hit this in Inappropriate Conversations number 150, which I called Opening the Scripture, going all the way back to September 2014. Two things are mentioned here and elsewhere, though. First, we are dealing with Jesus as 100% man and 100% God. In several passages of Scripture, Jesus knows what is to come. He accurately predicts things in Matthew and Luke that would happen decades later. If he wanted us to be so committed to a ban on homosexual behavior, so harsh that we'd be indifferent to suicide and other tragic costs, he would have said so, and the Holy Spirit would have ensured that those words were included in the inspired word of God, in the sense that that phrase refers to Scripture. Jesus said nothing. And that means a great deal. Second, there is a parallel passage in Matthew and Luke that could well be, likely is not, let's put it that way, about a man who engaged in so-called homosexual behavior with one of his servants. That man begged Jesus to heal his servant, which Jesus did, declaring that the top in that relationship had more faith than anyone in Israel. That seems more likely to be an okay from Jesus than anything else. Now, of course, I could be reading too much detail into that second point. On the other hand, you'd expect the first point, an omniscient and omnipresent God, to take advantage of the perfect opportunity this represented to make things more clear. If Jesus would not be okay with the conclusion that I've drawn, he had ample opportunity to say so within the context of the passages that I've just cited. Of course, you've got to believe that Jesus is omniscient and omnipresent. You have to believe that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, or it all falls apart, which begs the question of which heresy the members of the Gospel Coalition who might disagree with my worldview here are expressing. More on that later, perhaps. If so, why did Jesus reassert the Genesis definition of marriage as being one man and one woman? This one's also carefully answered in Inappropriate Conversations number 150. Jesus was asked a specifically gendered question by people who were trying to trick him into either supporting their agenda or denying his claim as being truth incarnate. Who is putting words into Jesus' mouth now? Read Matthew 19 again, in its entirety, and explain to me how it would be either wise or even grammatically appropriate to provide an expansive response looking forward through the centuries about marital constructs with different genders when you're asked a question about a man divorcing his wife. When Jesus spoke against porneia, what sins do you think he was forbidding? I don't speak either Greek or Aramaic. Forgive me, but I read the terminology of this question to be a false appeal to authority. I don't owe such a logical fallacy an answer this lording it over others situation. I'll answer it this way, though. 
David R. Mace has provided an excellent approach to what I believe this question is asking in his 1970 book, The Christian Response to the Sexual Revolution. I covered that in the first year of the podcast Inappropriate Conversations, episode number eight, April of 2010, long before Walk the Earth was even conceived. To summarize the three points David Mace made, though, one, don't exploit or abuse others, either sexually or to obtain a false consent. Two, take responsibility for children as the result of even extramarital sexual behavior. And three, resist flaunting or offending others by making private things too public. This is part of why I answered the third question in this list the way I did. We don't have evidence that Jesus presumed everyone's business was his business. Even in cases where adultery was a question being discussed, directly or indirectly, in passages like John 4 and John 8, Jesus used a light touch in the stories told in those chapters. If homosexual behavior is acceptable, how do you understand the sinful exchange Paul highlights in Romans chapter 1? I'm assuming that this list was created hastily. I've noted before that I also believe the intent of this set of questions is, well, not seeking answers particularly so much as grandstanding. And here is an example. This same question will show up later, worded only slightly differently, and it seems a bit dishonest or inept to me. Let me answer this question with a key principle and call out a consistent error by people who claim to be conservative about Scripture. Jesus has the characteristics of a necessary being, omniscient and omnipresent, for example. Paul does not. Ever notice how common it is for the religious right to give Paul credit for godlike qualities while, perhaps even earlier in this Q&A, denying it for Jesus? I'd be willing to bet that some politically conservative Christians would deny or even denounce my description of Jesus as someone who could see the future, making it meaningful if he chose not to speak back then into our conversation today. At the same time, though, those same people presume that Paul was speaking to all of today's LGBTQ people when he was denouncing non-consensual and exploitive things that he'd witnessed in Rome. I'm against child rape, regardless of the sexual orientations involved. I'm also against what we'd call white slavery or forced prostitution today. I believe in consent in our modern sense. All of this is consistent with what Paul wasn't seeing and therefore what Paul was denouncing. Paul was not seeing the future. He was not correcting the insufficiencies in Jesus' teaching or scriptural accounts. And that is incredibly important to any notion of orthodoxy. Do you believe that passages like 1 Corinthians 6-9 and Revelations 21-8 teach that sexual immorality can keep you out of heaven? This also prevents another false appeal to authority perhaps representing the great idolatry at the heart of the religious right today. Biblically, who decides who will and won't get into heaven? It isn't the author of the letters to Corinth, Paul. It isn't the author of the letter to seven churches and others that we call Revelations, John at Patmos. Those letters speak as advice more than authority. You see the same mistake with the beloved John 14, verse 6 as if the Christian world has one up on what Jesus can permit or forbid because the Bible says that I believe it and that settles it. Jesus has got no say beyond Scripture because these people seem to lose sight of the fact that the Bible itself refers to Jesus as the Word of God, not to Scripture as the Word of God. 
This is a check yourself before you wreck yourself moment. Jesus will decide what, if anything, about human sexuality either opens or locks the doors of heaven. If we're on the wrong track in our modern world, maybe we are. David, David Mace has that list I abbreviated above, and that's a good enough place to start. What sexual sins do you think they were referring to? They referring to Paul and John of Patmos. Well, they certainly were speaking to abusing others in exploitative ways. That ties back to David Mace's list. Now seems like a good time to ask a question of my own, though. By credible accounts, the current U.S. administration's policy toward asylum-seeking immigrants, including forced separation of children from their parents and independent incarcerations, has led to multiple sexual assaults, including a six-year-old girl as a victim. I have no doubt that Paul would condemn this. I have no doubt that John would condemn this, along with James and Peter and all the rest of those apostles. Easy to say, right? Because Jesus would obviously condemn this. Do you know what I haven't heard clearly and even remotely articulately? I haven't heard condemnation of this from the religious right in any manner that rises above conflicted and sheepish. Perhaps they don't want to offend the president, whom they seem to confuse with the Messiah from time to time. This is precisely the kind of sexual sin that we all should agree is being condemned throughout the New Testament. It's just that the people who are opposed to the concept of consent itself, and in favor of various forms of segregation, really struggle to reconcile what Jesus taught and showed us with, well, that situation. As you think about the long history of the church and the near-universal disapproval of same-sex sexual activity, what do you think you understand about the Bible that Augustine, Aquinas, Calvin, and Luther failed to grasp? I will just say that the blog post by Matt answers some of these questions much better than I do, including this one. But here's my thoughts just off the top. Add all the names of church leaders you want. Their voices will never drown out the silence of Christ. Suggesting the opposite calls into question the very notion of necessary being, which is simply the way Anselm and others describe the meaning of deity. If there is a God, then that God is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, etc. Did that set of men who lived hundreds, or more than hundreds in some cases of years ago, understand very simple concepts like the amount of sperm contained in a single ejaculation? To cite just one example. They operated on presumptions that we know now are false. It's telling that Jesus, knowing literally everything, did not make the same false presumptions by codifying ideas based on a man having one seed and the woman bringing nothing to procreation other than some sort of nest. One more reason we should be extremely deferential to both the words and the silence of Jesus. What arguments would you use to explain to Christians in Africa, Asia, and South America that their understanding of homosexuality is biblically incorrect, and your new understanding of homosexuality is not just culturally conditioned. I do not have a new understanding of homosexuality. On some level, I can't claim to have any understanding whatsoever, and neither can the presumably heterosexual man who wrote this list or group of men who compiled this list of questions. Listen, my notions of modesty and decorum are different from what I've seen over all the years of looking at National Geographic magazine. Cultures around the world have always had their own conditions, and it's true throughout the centuries as well, not just place, but also time. If, for example, 
I was a small group of immigrants who moved through incredible violence into a promised land, vanquishing many enemies, but surely making more along the way. I would definitely be open to strong guidance, laws from a Hebrew perspective, about ensuring that the maximum amount of childbirth possible was being created as quickly as possible. That was the culture at the time. Made sense at the time. Jesus, by the way, fulfilled all those laws. Read the book of Galatians, chapter 3, for example, if this is in any way confusing to you. You'll find no distinctions about civil and ceremonial laws there either. None. The concept is unbiblical in the sense of saying that Jesus did not fulfill those laws as he promised to do in the Sermon on the Mount and as he did deliver on the cross for crying out loud. Do you think Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were motivated by personal animus and bigotry when they, for almost all their lives, defined marriage as a covenant relationship between one man and one woman? I don't care to speak on behalf of politicians. Note how I sidestepped what I'll admit is a temptation to denounce the character of Trump earlier, when I was questioning his the lack of response of his Christian supporters to the consequences of seriously flawed policies, I'll grant that same grace to Clinton and Obama now. Notice the very stunted worldview behind this question. It leaves no space for personal growth, which, by its very nature, presumes changes or at least additions to perspective. The Bible is also a story that unfolds through several stages. To believe that Jesus has the last word, as I do, that he biblically is the word itself, includes respecting what he changed. How could Christ be accused of making all things new if nothing was changed as a result? Let's not be so naively conservative in that sense of the word that we view all change as bad and cannot conceive of growth in the fullest sense of that term. Do you think that children do best with a mother and a father? I believe I should be frightened by the seeming simple-mindedness of these questions, at least some of them. Do you think children do best with an abusive or neglective mother and father based on nothing more than the gender constructs within that family? Or would children do best when supported by loving parents of any combinations of genders? Isn't love the key? And if it isn't, then we need to be asking many more questions about what Jesus taught. The Gospel Coalition, in other words, has a lot to answer for. If not, if I don't believe that children do best with a mother and a father, what research would I point to in support of that conclusion? Well, when you do research from a truly open-minded perspective, following the scientific method as best as possible, with uncontrolled data, for example, then answers exist both in abundance and with the disclaimer that unless you are going to engage in rank human experimentation, there will always be wrinkles. We don't have controlled data. We're not doing scientific experiments on real people here. You have to set aside some of your bias, though. Consider this a nice way of saying, Google it yourself and let those with eyes see, let those with ears hear. Put it another way. As a society, we don't throw away all the kids of widows who are unable or unwilling to remarry. Or is that a lesser-known part of the Gospel Coalition's agenda? We should be surrounding and supporting single parents. We should be surrounding and supporting parents of different genders. And we should be surrounding and supporting parents of the same gender. If yes, does the church or state have any role to play in promoting or privileging the arrangement that puts children with a mom and a dad? Try this out. 
Neither church nor state should play a willfully negative role by ripping loving families apart based on the genders or sexual orientations of the parents. And the state should not be involved in forcing children to remain in violent or abusive situations simply because the parents have the right combinations of genitalia. Oh, and the church and state should not be conspiring today through uglier forms of conservative politics to destroy the families of people seeking refuge here, whether temporary or permanent, by engaging in policies that look dangerously close to the UN definition of genocide, taking children from parents and giving them to others, particularly where the perceptions of race or ethnicity play a role. Does the end and purpose of marriage point to something more than an adult's emotional and sexual fulfillment? Since marriage is the problem the religious right is trying to solve here, and it would appear multiple more times in these questions, I'm going to take the liberty of answering it in multiple ways. I'm okay with that. I know the focus of the question raisers is dressed up in lots of religiosity, but the folks often get church and state confused. Mixed up is probably a better term. So let me start here with a governmental perspective. Marriage is about a lot more than the emotional and sexual fulfillment of the adults involved. In this day and age, we don't really need marriage to cover those needs. I realize this must sound like fighting words to people who might imprison or even be tempted to kill, aka stoned to death, people who have sex outside of marriage, but we must deal with reality. I've shared on past Inappropriate Conversations podcasts the economics of marriage and how changes in technology and women's rights have made marriage more attractive than ever before to gay couples. Again, I know that many within the group that put forth this list of questions would unravel most of that too if given a chance. Still, marriage confers almost immediately a set of rights and responsibilities that greatly simplifies things like owning property and paying taxes, obtaining insurance, hospital visitation, consent, etc., etc. Note that that's not just one etc. I should throw in a couple more etc.s, because one etc. couldn't possibly suffice for a list as long as this one would be, based on just what the government says and means by marriage. How would you define marriage? I get what these questions are looking for. The goal is to come up with a more transcendent definition, a religious one, something more eternal, so to speak. I got some very bad news for the casually political Christians out there, the ones who seem so clearly to be more in love with the law than the Lord. Jesus did answer this question of the eternal significance of marriage. And although I personally treat my marriage like it's a forever thing, and I'd recommend that approach to anyone who asked, the fact is that it isn't that big of a deal to God. That's as true as your inerrant scriptures with red letters quoting Jesus himself as God incarnate, offering his unique perspective as the only person ever to walk the earth who can speak with actual authority about the afterlife. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 to 34, was included in Inappropriate Conversations 150, quoted there in its entirety. Listen if you'd like, or if you'd rather not read the scriptures for yourself. Do you think close family members should be allowed to get married? I'm not a fan. It's clearly happened in the Bible, particularly in Genesis, and denunciations of this practice are mixed, particularly if you struggle to see the Bible as narrative and have to deal with conflicts over what is permitted and what is forbidden. New Testament, Old Testament, Apocrypha. It gets messy, right? There is plenty of evidence to suggest that this can be harmful. Questions ranging from consent to birth defects, for example. 
should marriage be limited to only two people? Same type of answer as above. It happened in the Bible, yada, yada, yada. It's clearly problematic, if only from the perspective of consent. Just as problematic, though, is the intent of questions like these. Is the bestiality question just around the corner, I wonder? On what basis would you prevent consenting adults of any relation and any number from getting married? Look, the notion of what is being called anything from gay marriage to marriage equality being extended to an anything-goes-now mentality is patently ridiculous. I've had friendships interrupted or stunted over this, so I've got enough collateral here to justify coming on pretty strong. On one level... This is a repeat of the previous question, making it insulting and, frankly, a shameful embarrassment for the question writer. On another, the question answers itself. If, as I admittedly presuppose, consent is compromised when multiples of greater than two or incest, which is inherently non-consensual in a majority of cases, I leave the door open only because I don't find the plot to Old Boy as troubling as most moviegoers, despite the movie itself being intentionally uncomfortable and violent. I mean, how do you handle a case of incest where neither party in the relationship knew they were related to each other at all? But I digress. The simple answer here is that consent is the key. I wonder if the person who wrote this question understands what that means, or if the term consenting adults is just something worthy of derision somehow. I hear that a lot. And it sounds kind of snarky here in the question. Plus, I mentioned already, I was likely to come on strong. Should there be an age requirement in this country for obtaining a marriage license? Yes. Different cultures at different times have had different standards. We have a culture with a standard, though. We should follow that standard, far better than the supporters of politicians like Roy Moore. The online comments section of supporters for his Alabama bid to become a U.S. senator far too often read like old enough to bleed, old enough to breed. But I reject that worldview far more forcefully than anyone presuming to stand in judgment over marriage equality by attempting to link gay marriage with pedophilia. Clean up your own house before pointing accusations at others, followers of the so-called religious right. Three years ago, you didn't have a Roy Moore albatross hanging around your neck, but now that's got to feel a lot more like a millstone, I reckon. Does marriage equality entail that anyone wanting to be married should be able to have any meaningful relationship defined as marriage? Note that a couple of times I've specifically eliminated any support for some of the specific ways marriage has been defined historically. Still, I'm still against child marriage. If this question is another inept form of insinuation rather than a question, I'm still against child marriage. Note, though, that marriage has included a broad range in the past. Some I reject. Polygamy. Some I'm indifferent to, like political or economical mergings of of aristocratic families. Given this, and the fact that marriage is not actually sexual from an eternal perspective, I don't have a problem with a non-sexual but very committed and meaningful relationship being legally defined as a marriage by the government. Now, whether a church would reject such an arrangement, unless it was confident the missionary position was going to play a consummating role, reveals something both fascinating and disturbing about that church. Note, though, that nothing in the Supreme Court ruling a few years ago or since is forcing any church to play any role in any matrimonial union in any way, and anyone who suggests otherwise cannot be trusted. If not, why not? Okay, questions 
like this and the repetitions it notes makes me wonder if someone predetermined that 40 was a magic number and they had to get to that number of questions no matter what. If not, why not? Whatever. Should your brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree with homosexual practice be allowed to exercise their religious beliefs without fear of punishment, retribution, or coercion? This one is also very simple. No one has the right to exercise a religious practice that is specifically designed to harm others, to deny them the right to live their lives with the same freedoms you'd expect for yourself. Of course my brothers and sisters in Christ should be allowed to exercise their religious beliefs. Of course. Examine yourself, as Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 15. That is what our religion teaches. Do not judge others, then you will not be judged, as Jesus taught in Matthew 7. Love your neighbor as you love yourself, as this fulfills all the law, as Paul taught in Romans 13. If we are talking about my brothers and sisters in Christ, then this is the exercise of religion we are discussing. Those are the beliefs. You can reject or compromise those beliefs, but not without denying Christ or raising serious questions about how seriously you actually take the authority of Paul's letters. Now, I'm an American, strongly committed to the First Amendment, in the Bill of Rights, in the U.S. Constitution. Nothing says you have to be a Christian to have the right to freely exercise your religion. You can even be someone who rejects the New Testament almost entirely while calling yourself Christian, somehow, and maintain freedom of religion rights. Like me, though, those rights stop at the point that our exercise seemingly forces us to harm, compromise, marginalize, or segregate others. So there are limits. Obvious limits. I say obvious, but the people who are obsessed with stopping a low or no possible threat of Sharia law from Muslim Americans seem hell-bent on establishing some Christian equivalent in our laws, in our society, and in their so-called free exercise of religion. All this is really a long way of saying that I don't support any effort from Muslims here to attack LGBTQ people and harm them in any way. I'm also, unsurprisingly, not supporting any such effort from Christians. Simple, really, should be obvious too. Will you speak up for your fellow Christians when their jobs, their accreditation, their reputation, their freedoms are threatened because of this issue? Again, is it really necessary to look at both sides of the coin in order to determine whether it is in fact a quarter? I get why children have to do this at first when they're young. The approach reminds me of complaints from the author of the letter of the Hebrews in the New Testament. Hebrews 5 speaks with disappointment about believers who still seem to need milk rather than solid food. Just as I won't stand up for Christians who use religion as an excuse to attack people, I also won't stand up for people who threaten Christians who don't and yet are discriminated against. There's an irony, though. In people who seem so desperate to justify discrimination over something their victims cannot control, seeking assurances that no one will discriminate against them. It doesn't matter to me if your faith is a choice or something supernaturally beyond your control, and I certainly don't care to judge you based on your sexual desires. Feel free to imitate this approach. Will you speak out against the shaming and bullying of all kinds, whether against gays or lesbians, against evangelicals and Catholics? Tell you what, evangelicals, tell you what. Remove your objections to anti-bullying laws proposed in recent years in states like Michigan and Tennessee. I have a strong track record of denouncing bullying. The religious right cannot say the same. And forgive me for saying that it's all about self-serving now to demand protections so often denied by politically conservative Christians to others all over this country. 
That said, yes, I'm against bullying. Having said that, if you harm people because you irrationally fear their sexuality or sexual orientation, then you may be homophobic. I question whether properly identifying that, using precise and scientific language, is the same thing as shaming and bullying. It's not like I'm insisting that God hates those people who are irrationally afraid or homophobic, only that the hope of redemption is both good and necessary, even for Christians. Since the evangelical church has often failed to take unbiblical divorces and other sexual sins seriously, what steps will you take to ensure that gay marriages are healthy and accord with scriptural principles? I can't help but to read this from the perspective of an in-group versus out-group situation, which is how most of this list actually reads. That means that this question is pretty much saying, hey, we as the organized church have failed completely, and we think we're better than you, so we're pretty sure you will fail too, and we can't have that, can we? So unless you can promise to follow Christ's teachings and about divorce better than we do, then we'll then you'll just have to remain in the out-group. And we'll remain in the in-group, of course, because we wisely called you out on this predicted future moral failing. Yes, stop talking and change the subject. You're embarrassing yourself. Equality means just that. Equality. Let's all strive to do better, okay? Should gay people in an open relationship be subject to church discipline? Same answer as above. Stop repeating yourself. Is it a sin for LGBT persons to engage in sexual activity outside of marriage? Same answer as above. Am I getting fatigued and taking this shortcut or just merely pointing out the obvious? That was question 30. Ten more to go. Repetitions are coming up again as well. What will open and affirming churches do to speak prophetically against divorce, fornication, pornography, and adultery wherever they are to be found? Okay. Um, let's do better as the church universal than proven failings like calling bad things bad and hiding them under the carpet. Because like it or not, that's a not quite inaccurate view of what the world has seen from the church today. Let's minister to the needs of people who are human and therefore fallible. Let's do what Jesus taught in the process, leaving the judging to God, while at the same time finding far more constructive, building up forms of accountability. If love wins, how would you define love? Sounds like a trap to me, an invitation to oversimplify. Love is not just one thing. C.S. Lewis has written on this topic as well, and I recommend his work. In the Inappropriate Conversations podcast, the other show that's on this feed at www.inappropriateconversations.org, I name a different drummer in every episode. Someone who has influenced me by blazing a new trail or... Uh, of sorts, or excelling with an otherwise familiar path, I named Lewis a different drummer in the first year of Inappropriate Conversations. I called episode number 20, Chapter and Verse, and it came out in July 2010. I also shared some of the concepts there for the first time, and I took a dive into friendship as a topic on Inappropriate Conversations number 44, Sacred Friendship, in January 2011. Maybe I view this question as a provocation of sorts, because it is either deeply disturbing that someone who views himself as a Christian leader might be confused and need an answer, or, more likely, the point is to suggest that people who love their LGBTQ friends simply cannot know what love means and their definitions will inevitably be unbiblical. Well, here's biblical for you. Start with the golden rule. 
If you cannot do unto others as you would have them do unto you, then your relationship falls short of what we might call love. That is, of course, just a start, but it raises questions about people who would shun others, asking a lot of very defensive questions about whether someone like me would defend them if they were, you know, shunned. I'm not sure there's pure gold in some of these Christians' understanding of the golden rule. What verses would you use to establish that definition? As I've said before in this Q&A, you don't need my help. Use Google or Bible Gateway or other resources. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13 are familiar to most people, for example. If you doubt that I understand chapter and verse, though, I could recommend any number of past podcasts. Let me simplify, though, by just mentioning again Inappropriate Conversations number 150. It has chapters and verses, all with a great deal of context and enough commentary to demonstrate the strength of my convictions. Oh, and the different drummer in that episode is currently scheduled to join me on the next Inappropriate Conversations podcast, which will be recorded live before a studio audience later this month. How should obedience to God's commands shape our understanding of love? <laughs> I chuckle to myself from time to time in a laugh-so-you-don't-have-to-cry kind of a way that one of the conservative Christian authors who has spoken the most eloquently about the need to understand both truth and grace together has, at times, chucked all that out the window over what I'm sure he would call the gay agenda. And I'm not citing him here by name because I'm genuinely conflicted about how to keep the best of his work while knowing what I've read from him since then. This question reflects a similar situation. Jesus gave us two commandments, and he meant for us to focus there. It was a bit of a trick, in a good way, because if you follow these two, then you don't really need anything else. You know, the old saying, the more corrupt the society, the more the laws. Well, people who look beyond the great commandments are just as likely to be looking for loopholes than guidance, subconsciously or otherwise. So here we are. Jesus told us to love God with all our hearts and souls and strengths and minds, and he also emphasized that we must love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Paul explained the second of those, the Leviticus reference, quite well by saying that someone who loves his neighbor will do him no harm and thereby fulfills all the law. Emphasis is Paul's. Is this focus on the Deuteronomy reference, loving God, little more than an attempt to justify the non-biblical love the sinner but hate the sin talk that undermines any concept of love and frankly calls the gospel message into question or disrepute and how it is often used and what it seems to be justifying in the minds of people who, who use that talk? Maybe that's a rhetorical question. Listen, Jesus is God. It's an unseemly inversion of the docetism heresy to deny this. The false binary of docetism suggested that Jesus was 100% God and only appearing to be man at all, a.k.a. 0% man. It's just as wrong, though, to suggest that Jesus was 100% man and some lesser amount God. So when Jesus tells us our commands are to love God and neighbor, those are the commands of God. It is impossible to follow these commands at all without that obedience shaping our understanding of love. The commands are all about love. Note, though, that love isn't simple or easy by any means, any more than it's just one thing. Mentioned that fact already, though. As an aside, isn't it scary for some to suggest that there is only one love? Well, including good sexuality within that definition as a means to exclude all the rest is bad sexuality. Wouldn't that mean when a pastor says he loves his congregation, he's subconsciously trying to figure out how he can get it before he quits it with all of us? Or she? 
or he or she loves us like a shepherd loved his flock, well, the, the obsession with the religious right over bestiality would suddenly come disturbingly into focus, wouldn't it? Okay, let's all agree that there isn't just one definition of love and move right along. Do you believe that it's possible to love someone and disagree with important decisions they make? Yes, but all knowledge isn't created equal. I'm not entitled to have a decision about every important decision that someone makes. The decision to live a celibate life, for example, can and never will be a decision that anyone else should make on your behalf. Jesus makes this distinction in Matthew 19. You know, after he offers a quick and dismissive answer to a leading question by some Pharisees about whether a man should be allowed to divorce his wife. Jesus, with his disciples moments later, goes on to say that this marriage question is more complex than he is interested in helping them to understand. He uses the concept of eunuch in multiple ways, distinct ways. Between the lines, he is implying that some choose celibacy. For those to thrust it upon others in an involuntary way, though, is an act of violence, arguably as violent as castration. If supporting gay marriage is a change for you, has anything else changed in your understanding of the faith? This begs a question that reveals a troublesome oversimplification. When you have an overriding prejudice, if you do, that everything that is the other starts looking the same to you. It becomes seemingly impossible to distinguish between a mother and child fleeing deadly violence created by political unrest and fueled by international superpowers using your sovereign nation as some sort of chessboard from drug-dealing gang members, for example. Sad but true. Or you really can't separate in your mind anything you perceive to be the gay agenda from anything else. My position on marriage equality has been, at the same time, very consistent and pragmatically evolving. Is that a nuance? Yes. It does require a certain amount of mental acumen to track, but I've been quite transparent about it. Both in podcasts and blog posts, none of my past views have been edited or removed from www.inappropriateconversations.org. So I have flirted with civil unions for everyone from the government's perspective, including my own marriage because I'm not a hypocrite or a bigot. That would leave the word marriage solely in the hands of the church, and I would certainly support any church who decided to marry any couple that was legally qualified for a civil union. Protecting the concepts around consent that seem to fuel half of these questions, give or take. In other words, I'm going to rejoice with those who rejoice assuming that some churches would marry gay couples. I've also learned that the opposition to gay people being treated equally in our society is shockingly strong, especially within the evangelical church. Would the religious right destroy our very form of government on the hope that the right judicial nominees could overturn marriage equality and abortion rights? Isn't that a stupid question? Haven't they made that clear? That the becoming a Russian territory that persecutes the gay community would be preferable to some of them, many of them, than a free country where some people exercise freedoms that others would never even consider exercising. Back to the question at hand. Nothing has changed in my understanding of faith. It is my faith that has led me through the whole way. Note that this particular nuanced flexibility has been on U.S. law, though, not the commandments of Jesus. As an evangelical, how has your support for gay marriage helped you become more passionate about the traditional evangelical directives, like a focus on being born again, the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ on the cross, the total trustworthiness of the Bible, and the urgent need to evangelize the lost?
What is the question at hand for this Walk the Earth episode? It really isn't any of these 37 going on 40. No. It's whether answering insincere questions has value in the moment, much later, or ever. Seems an appropriate time to restate that now. The logical fallacy here is probably multiple levels of begging the question with a bit of a straw man argument on the side. It assumes that every Christian is an evangelical. It assumes that the word evangelical has maintained some consistent historic meaning through the pollution of the religious rights obsession with politics. It presumes that orthodoxy itself is only possible under the umbrella of evangelicalism. Truth is, the nourishing glory of the gospel needs no filter. You can both accept all of the principles hidden as assumptions within this question and challenge definitions at the same time. One example, the total trustworthiness of the Bible. Paul tells us that the law was in effect only until Christ came in Galatians 3. And the people who still insisted on following Old Testament laws might as well castrate themselves as Christ is of no longer of any use to them. Galatians 5. So how can being committed to the total trustworthiness of the Bible be reconciled with those who suggest we still must follow Old Testament laws? Laws that almost without exception were never meant to extend beyond the behavior targeted at the colonizing of the land of milk and honey. I'd suggest that my embrace of the Lord is a far greater sign of trusting the scriptures than their rejections of a ton of Paul's teaching. But we'll get back to Paul before this is done, no doubt. What open and affirming churches would you point to where people are being converted to Orthodox Christianity, sinners are being warned of judgment and called to repentance, and missionaries are being sent out to plant churches among unreached people? (sighs) Fatigue sets in. Perhaps this is another logical fallacy built on the assumption that so-called affirming church could never preach the gospel. The writer would be well served to remember a couple of things from scripture. Remember Peter's attitude in Acts about the Gentiles? How it changed by the Lord giving him a supernatural vision about which animals were acceptable to eat? And how that led to the conversion of Cornelius and his family despite being Gentiles? I refer to this at length in Inappropriate Conversations, number 131. I called it Taking the Bible Seriously. And Rob Bell was the different drummer. Make of that what you will. It was released in October 2013. I'd also refer to what Jesus taught in John chapter 10. He told his disciples directly that they weren't the only part of his flock. He was going to shepherd other sheep, lambs he had reason to believe that some would say had no place in his flock. Was he talking about Was he talking to a Jewish audience about the Gentiles? Probably, although it isn't clear. So once again, we must respect the silence of Christ. He could have been talking about gay Christians, easily, I'd say. Who gets to decide? Jesus or the Gospel Coalition? That's not a rhetorical question. I currently attended Disciples of Christ Church. I spent a lot of time visiting an evangelical Lutheran church. If I was in Dallas visiting friends, I'd likely attend a Presbyterian USA church or a non-denominational group that meets in homes or bars or restaurants. I've left the United Methodist Church, but it wasn't directly about issues like these. Much of my extended family, in fact, remains United Methodist. There are options. In all of these cases, except perhaps the church we left when we started walking the earth, the gospel was preached, accountability was emphasized, churches were planted, mission work was done, prayers were raised, meals were served, and I could go on and on and on. 
It is a tremendous sin to presume that an intelligent designer who works in mysterious ways can be exclusively defined by a single, narrow, religious tradition. It's a gross oversimplification in every sense of those words. Do you hope to be more committed to the church, more committed to Christ, and more committed to scriptures in years ahead? Two answers. Always, of course. And if you are implying what you seem to be implying, then I'd call you to accountability. Remember the repentance talk in the previous question? If you want to help me love my neighbors as I love myself, then humble yourself and bring it on. If you've got a list of neighbors you think need a lot less love talk and a lot more hate the sin talk, then quoting Jesus, get behind me, Satan, because you're not doing it Christ's way. You're playing God, not not following God, and I am praying for you. The frozen tweet on my at IC underscore Greg Twitter page says this. Christians who truly believe sexuality is a choice are surely deeply closeted bisexuals in need of prayer and help for their self-loathing. I meant that sincerely. If, on the other hand, you know this isn't about choice and you're merely lording it over people, then that choice of how to evangelize is in and of itself taking the Lord's name in vain because you are playing God. Please stop that. Repent. Finally, when Paul, at the end of Romans 1, rebukes those who practice such things and those who give approval to those who practice them, what sins do you think he has in mind? I wonder if, at the writing of this particular question, the concerned evangelical believed that chapter and verse numbers were noted at the time these letters were written by Paul and or others. If the superscripts themselves were part of the divine inspiration, God's hand guiding the pen of the apostles. It is always a mistake to read a passage, particularly the arguments of Paul, as if those chapters are somehow self-contained. In Romans 1, Paul is crafting an argument, at times perhaps banal and certainly at times audacious, that he intends to leverage in chapter 2, including a call to action in the chapters that follow. He isn't legislating. He isn't offering concurrent opinions to pass judicial decisions. He is making a complex argument. In a nutshell, it goes like this. A. You think these things are bad, right? Surely some of them make you bristle with self-righteous indignation. B. Oh yeah? Well, you are just as bad as those people I mentioned in the first chapter with your self-righteous pride. And C. So you need to recognize your place in the story that the Lord is telling and contribute accordingly. Look at how many Christians are making the same mistake that Paul was addressing with the Jews in Rome. Part of me doesn't care how any particular Christian interprets Romans 1. I personally believe that Paul is denouncing temple prostitution, wealthy people preying upon the powerless, sex with underage people without regard for the genders of any combinations therein, etc. But I'm saying that I can still work with you in a Bible study sense if you believe that Paul is condemning any same-sex relations because you find it to be icky and you desperately cling to the idea that God hates it too. Guess what? God finds a lot of things we do to be icky, to keep that colloquial phrase. Paul notes, you know, really a long list of icky things, including lying, ingratitude, idolatry, lust, greed, envy, murder, gossip, slander, disrespect of elders, and more. Icky. All icky to a perfect necessary being. 
in part because all that nonsense is, in an eternal sense, unnecessary. And I mean that theologically as much as anything else. Are we ignoring Paul and having the temerity to question God by saying that some of those things aren't, in fact, icky at all? Are we suggesting that the Bible is an error because James was an error when he wrote that whoever violates any one of the Old Testament laws violates them all if keeping that old covenant is somehow the goal? Are we violating those very standards about honesty, humility, and gratitude by suggesting that our lust isn't really icky, but the lusts of those others certainly are? Or, anyway, they're more icky? Here's the sin that Paul has in mind by providing such a varied list in Romans 1. You can follow along in Romans 2 if you like. I'm going to quote verses 1 through 5. Paul says this, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do those same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet you do those same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? That because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Here is the Christian worldview. All of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus told us not to judge or condemn others, but to put ourselves in their shoes, to show empathy. We are to help our brothers and sisters up, not hold them back. And once we understand that we are facing circumstances that are beyond our ability to fully understand, then we need to walk far more lightly in our support of them rather than double down on the harshness, particularly if we think that we are helping God by rendering some judgment or ruling of our own. The whole point of Romans 1 is to remind us in Romans 2 that we ought not think more highly of ourselves than others. This is the sin that Paul had in mind. Once again, I remind a proudly Christian world that we need to repent. Not only am I capable of answering these questions, but I know the harmful and hateful place they came from. So how do I answer the question or questions whether answering insincere questions has value? in the moment, much later, or ever. It is perfectly acceptable to refuse to answer insincere questions. As I've said before in Walk the Earth number 48 last November, I believe people who want answers ask questions. But that does not mean that everyone who asks questions want answers, though. Some just want to imply that others are somehow clueless. So I waited more than three years, and I'm not answering the questions now to prove anything to anyone. I don't think it's necessary to show that I've been thoughtful and prayerful. Past episodes of both Walk the Earth and Inappropriate Conversations have shown my work on exams like this one, so to speak. No, it gave me an opportunity to ask a few questions of my own. That's all. That, and maybe addressing the occasional challenge of how I can be functioning fully within the body of Christ and capable of loving my LGBTQ friends and neighbors. Friends and strangers, this isn't an either-or, yet another fallacy. I don't show my love for people who have been harmed by the church or marginalized by our society despite of my love for Jesus. No, it's through it. Go and do likewise. Amen.
What happened this morning, man, I agree, it was peculiar. But water into wine, I... All shapes and sizes, Vincent. You shouldn't talk to me that way, man. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions. Normally I would throw a next on Walk the Earth here, but in light of an upcoming appearance at Pride 48 2018, online at pride48.com, or through the TuneIn Radio app, feels more appropriate to talk about what's next on Inappropriate Conversations. I'm going to talk about the neighborhood, and neighbors, and being neighborly, with a different drummer who personified that, and telling a story about that different drummer, and one of his co-workers, that caught me by surprise earlier this year when I decided to take a look. Oh, and in addition to naming a different drummer, I'll also be on stage with a former different drummer, Nicole Villacrez, from the Greetings from Nowhere podcast. Thanks for listening. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at pride48.com. Hey, I wanted to put a quick postscript on this show with some information about Pride 48 that is still tentative, but uh, as it is today, meaningful for inappropriate conversations and listeners of Walk the Earth. As I mentioned earlier, three years ago at Pride 48, Walk the Earth did a show, Walk the Earth 30. It was released in September of 2015 online, but it could have been heard live from anyone using TuneIn Radio app or dialing in via the Pride48.com website. In August of that year. In August of this year, 2018, Inappropriate Conversations is currently scheduled for 2 o'clock Eastern Time, 1 o'clock Central Time. So instead of Walk the Earth as a podcast, it'll be Inappropriate Conversations. I will have a special guest who is a former different drummer. The reason I say some of this is tentative is that when I sent my confirmation back to say I was perfectly fine with a 1 to 1.55 p.m. Central Time slot on Sunday, August 26th, that I also was extra- incredibly flexible, that I will be in for the entire event, uh, coming in Wednesday before the shows start on Thursday, and not flying out until Monday morning. So I'll be there all the way till the end of the of the Sunday night. So to state again, Pride 48 in New Orleans this year will be Friday, August 24th, starting at 5 p.m. Central Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, and ending at 6 p.m. Central Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Sunday, 
August 26th, and if nothing changes, the 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Central Time time slot is the Inappropriate Conversations podcast. (laughs) 